Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hey, missed you guys. It's been a minute. What has it been? Two months or close to it? Yeah, need to take some time off and take care of some business. And you all know how this goes. You know what it is. And now we're back having a little bit of fun. And it is what it is. So what's been going on with you? I've been looking around and trying to catch up on some things. Haven't had the opportunity to really post a lot of the things that I want to post. But um, as I've told you guys in the past, basically, you can get a lot of the information from the Black Freethinkers Praxis or the Moving Social Justice Daily. So I have both of those papers out there, and you can get a lot of information from those, a lot of different articles, um, not just from the ones that I post, but it pulls from a lot of different hashtags. And I've had people um, say, well, where does this article come from? You know, because sometimes it would be a bunch of conservative BS. And what's happening is you'll have a lot of these conservatives controlling the different hashtags. So, you know, I really don't control that, but when it's brought to my attention, I go and delete it and blacklist that particular site or the person. So just keep letting me know, but definitely, you guys, keep going, uh, reading the paper. Actually, a really, really good paper. So what have you all been up to? You know, I guess the question is, what have I been up to? There's been a lot going on on my end. Um, let me see, the last show we did was December 20th. Yeah, December 20th. And last year was just, <laughs> was just a big old roller coaster to me. I mean, um, in the beginning of July, when Cletus died, you know, that I think that threw us all as far as me and a lot of the people that you know, I affiliate with, and, you know, that was very hurtful. I mean, there is no other way I can say it. You know, that drew us all. He was 17. He was 17, and senseless violence. And, um, you know, I don't know, it just, it hurts, and make adjustments, and you move forward. But, yeah, it was a real interesting summer for me, but even more interesting was some of the things that happened during Christmas, which is why, you know, I had to take a step back and wait for some things and put some other things back in order. So, you know, there's been a lot of changes, Um, and you're going to hear a lot of those changes on the show um, as well. So, you know, we're moving forward, making necessary changes, and, you know, life goes on. But, yeah, it's it's been interesting, like I said, you know, being out here and trying to get everything situated. So, anyway, you all didn't come to hear that specifically, but it's just, Life happens, you know, happy to report that, 
you know, two of the babies. We got back home. So, you know, pretty happy about that. Um, The big boy, his um, birthday was and took the kids to Chuck E. Cheese, you know, because they've been through so much. And took them to Chuck E. Cheese and let them play for about three hours. I didn't even realize three hours had gone by. And anyone who knows me knows that when I go to places like that, you know, usually all the little noises, the background noises, usually just rattles my nerves. But I didn't even pay attention. I was just sitting there talking with my sister. And, um, you know, talking about, you know, what we need to do as a family and responsibilities. And so after they were done, because my sister was the one who couldn't take it. So so anyway, you know, then we took them next door to Toys R Us. And why we set children free in Toys R Us, I do not know. But I told them that they could get, like, two toys each. So it was interesting because the girl, she went and picked up one of those frozen dolls, right? So she got it, dropped it in the cart, and because she showed it to me, I'm like, yeah, and she dropped it in the cart, and then I picked it up. And I looked at my sister, and then I said to her, I said, are you sure you don't want a brown or a black doll? And she was like, no, this is the one I want. And me and my sister looked at each other, and my sister was like, well, you tried. So it was the funniest thing, but, you know, those kids were running around the store and smiling and happy. And so that, you know, that that made me definitely feel good. And, you know, they're adjusting pretty good. So, you know, that's that there. You know, I really don't want to go into too much of it, but... Um, you know, some major, major changes, you know, have been made, but good changes, good changes. There are more updates to that particular scenario coming. So, hey, like I said, I just wanted to come up for air and say hello, talk about a few things, but, you know, I don't think I'm going to do the entire two hours today. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Uh, It just depends on how I'm feeling. But, um, you know, what's interesting is this presidential race. Now, when I say interesting, I'm talking about I hate them all and I wish this was over with. You know, I don't like any of the Republican candidates. I don't like any of the Democratic candidates. I think it's all just nuts what we're being forced to endure on a daily basis. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump is actually leading you know, it's unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, I've already talked about, you know, Donald Trump and his prosperity gospel because basically he's just emulating that. And, and <laughs> you know, I've warned you guys, you know, need for you to pay attention. Ted Cruz is just scary for a number of reasons. So is Marco Rubio, but it's not – you know, all that better on the Democratic side. You know, there are some things about Hillary that are just outright frightening and some things about Bernie Sanders that are like, you know, I want to look at people and tell them, I'm like, are you not paying attention 
to what this guy is saying. You know, have you not, you know, done any checking on his, you know, on his background? You know, he's not a bad person. So I don't need anyone inboxing me or emailing me or anything like that. That's why I put that article on my wall. You know, one of the very few that I've put on my wall in the past, you know, month and change. But it says, stop burning explaining to black folks. You know, because you have people that would say if you don't vote for Bernie, you're voting against your own interests and, you know, trying to convince us why Bernie is the better candidate. You know, and so it's just interesting because there was some news story and the woman was talking about Hillary and how, you know, she felt that Hillary was real and was being real about the problems and the issues, you know, in in America. And, you know, I think they've all lost their minds. You know, we do not do enough to vet these candidates. And you've heard me say on a number of occasions on this show while encouraging people to get registered to vote, and yes, I'm encouraging you to register and vote, but the local politics actually has more of an effect on you, more of an impact on your life. So, you know, I'm guilty of some of this myself, you know, (laughs) because it's like we have an election coming up in Chicago, and Anita Alvarez has to go. Um, You know, there are a couple of other candidates. I don't like them either. So it's like you're caught between a rock and a hard place. I know sometimes when you would have to vote for the judges, and we're like, who the hell are these people? So, you know, I want you all want to encourage you guys. Somebody do the research, and then you share it with everybody else. Because I think that's what I'm going to have to do here in Chicago, not only about, you know, the research and sharing, but just to better educate myself on, you know, some of these key players you know, running to be this judge, that judge, who wants to be the dog catcher, all of that, you know, it's important because that has more of an effect on us. And, you know, I've seen all of these think pieces talking about if Donald Trump wins, then the Republicans are going to lose the House and the Senate, and, you know, Donald Trump will lose to Hillary. I mean, you hear all these different stories out here, but, You know, you don't hear a lot of people talking. Well, yeah, you do. You have to pay attention. So I can't say you don't hear a lot of people. You have people that skip over this because they're only really interested in the federal elections. But if you go and you do some research, you'll see that a lot of these governorships have been taken over by Republicans. And they're the ones rejecting Obamacare. They're the ones, you know, making these cuts, basically um, kicking people off of, you know, much-needed social programs. And, you know, I've explained it to you before. You know, I'll give an example, Section 8 vouchers. And this is an assistance program to help people who normally would not be able to afford to live on their own independently. And so, you know, they're given a monthly stipend, which goes directly to the property owner. And what's been happening is they've been working overtime to kick people out of this program, yet the money that they receive from the federal government stays the same. So if they were were getting, 
you know, $50 million a year toward that particular program. They continue to get $50 million a year towards that particular program, but they're kicking more and more people off, which leaves more money left over, and they get to use that money for their, you know, pet projects, you know, like bridges to nowhere and little things like that, while at the same time, you know, not approving a budget, you know, we have a big mess in Illinois. Not sure if you all have been keeping up with it, but Governor Rauner, you know, Republican governor that won, you know, um, you know, he beat the incumbent. And a lot of that was because some black preachers decided to endorse Rauner. And they felt like, or they claimed they felt like they wanted to change, but Hmm. Some of them have been appointed to different positions, and you all know how this goes. And we try to explain it to people. But anyway, you know, what's been happening is they have not approved the budget. So one of Illinois' staples, which is Chicago State University, which is on the south side of Chicago, predominantly, you know, people of color attend that institution. Well, the money has run out. And the governor and the state legislature still have not approved the budget or monies. And so, you know, you have a lot of these young people and older people out here protesting. And they, they, they should be out there protesting because that's going to take even more educational opportunities away. You know, there are some children that can't go away for school. They just simply cannot afford it. But, you know, some kind of way, they find a way to be able to afford to pay for some of the classes. And it's in a city. They may stay at home or they may have, you know, housemates or what have you. But, you know, they're just taking a lot of these opportunities away, guys, you know. And a lot of this is due to gridlock. And, you know, we need to start making an even louder noise, you know, holding these people even more accountable. So, anyway, go and read that article. Charles Blow wrote it. And um, stop burning splaining <laughs> to black voters. It's just it's really interesting because, you know, on a number of occasions I've seen people, you know, well, no, you don't understand. What makes you think I don't understand? So, you know, it's just interesting because watching some of the progress or some of the status updates and a drama on Facebook, you have people unfriending each other, people blocking each other, just a number of things. So, you know, this election, the whole thing, you know, is just a big nightmare. And that's one thing that I do advocate for. We need to get rid of these political parties. And in addition to that, third-party candidates should be able to participate in these debates, you know. And so it's interesting, if you trace that all the way back to Ross Perot and the history of that, you'll get a better understanding as to what changed and how it changed and why it changed and why Ross Perot was pivotal. So anyway... Um, it's going to be interesting. You know, you have Bloomberg threatening to get into the office. But, yeah, no, it's it's, <laughs> it's been interesting. Um, 
sitting around and watching some of the things social media things, you know, you know, I have other things that I need to attend to and deal with. So, you know, um, I really don't want to talk that about that Beyonce thing because plain and simply, I just don't care. So, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit. But before I go into that, you know, again, you know, Beyonce and Jay-Z, they've been donating money to a lot of different organizations over the years. You know, what they donated most recently, that isn't anything new. There are a lot of different pulp, pop culture icons, if you will, that have been donating, you know, to these different endeavors. Uh, If you all don't remember, John Legend and his wife sent the food trucks out to feed the protesters in New York. Um, And they've been donating money, so on and so forth. But what I find most interesting is just because they're donating money and they may give a slogan or two, that doesn't mean that they're trying to be Harriet Tubman. It doesn't mean that they're trying to be W.E.B. Du Bois. And we need to stop trying to make them those people. It's just the whole thing is interesting, you know, and there's nothing wrong with admiring them and, you know, truly grateful that they're donating money. But, you know, some of that, you know, it it just gets really interesting because sometimes people don't know how to separate, you know, the person from the image. You know, that's why you see all of this back and forth on Bill Cosby. Because some people, when they look at Bill Cosby, they see Cliff Huxtable. They don't see Bill Cosby. And so it's just it's, it's interesting because that is one of the reasons why some of these celebrities have a hard time dating because people fall in love or lust with their power and with the personality that they project on stage. You all got to remember, you know, Sometimes what they project on stage isn't what they are in real life. So the whole thing is just, you know, really interesting on how this has come about. But looking, you know, I, I read some of the think pieces on this formation video and Beyonce's performance in the Super Bowl. I haven't watched it because I wanted to see it. And, you know, what was interesting was all of the hurt white feelings, you know, white fragility. And, you know, why weren't there any white people, you know, dancing with her on stage? It was just absolutely ridiculous. And because she paid homage to the Black Panthers, you know, you had all these people, somebody in Toronto, I believe, you know, some type of political person up there, was saying that they wanted the Justice Department to investigate Beyonce's, you know, ties to the Black Panther. It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I'm sitting here and I'm reading all of this, and, you know, this is one of the things that drives us nuts because this is one of the reasons why we can't make any progress in regards to you know, being able to move forward, having a real dialogue on race, having a real dialogue 
on identity politics and just a number of things, having a real dialogue on capitalism and why it's evil. And so I'm just looking at it and um, (laughs) just laughing at how quick we are to call somebody the new Martin Luther King Jr. or the new Malcolm X or the new Rosa Parks, the new Fannie Lou Hamer. And they're not. They're not. It's just interesting. You know, there was an article out a couple of weeks ago about how some white guy is going to play Michael Jackson. And we've been talking about the whitewashing of, you know, history and how several years from now, you know, they're going to have white people playing Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. You know, they're totally factoring of history. And there are things that we can actually do about this. And so we need to get active. We need to get active. We need to get out there. We need to make our voices heard. You know, I went to a seminar about a month ago. When was that seminar? Actually, that seminar was, yeah, early early mid-January. And so we were just talking about some of the issues. The facilitator was a wonderful woman from North Carolina, and basically, you know, we just we were doing some introspection and learning techniques and how to engage, you know, fellow activists, learning how to engage the local community, learning how to engage, you know, um, politicians, just a number of things. I got a lot of great information from that class. And so, you know, there was one section in which we were able to, everybody had a chance to stand up and and pose a question that they felt that was, you know, um, relevant. And so one of the questions that I posed was for groups or people that have been traditionally marginalized and silenced, how do we encourage them to speak? And, you know, if you take a look at the political culture and climate that we have in this country, when you have people that are part of these, you know, community and grassroots and social, you know, activism organizations, when we say Black Lives Matter, in response, we get All Lives Matter. And, you know, whenever we try to say Black Lives Matter, you get people that just get so angry and try to shut the conversation down and tries to co-opt, you know, these movements. And it's just absolutely amazing. And we've talked about it on this show. All they're doing is trying to shut us up and shut us down, which is why many of us have gotten louder. Many of us have, you know, become more confrontational. And so it's just, it's it's really interesting. And it's a lot more that I want to talk about in that regard because, again, I've stated before and I'll state it again, if all lives mattered, we wouldn't have to say black lives mattered. You know, and you still have all these people out here like, yeah, we support equal rights, but we need the police officers and they're doing the right thing. And it doesn't matter if we get the videotape and it shows, you know, that the person was walking away from the police, not, you know, not being confrontational with them. You know, the Laquan McDonald video here in Chicago, 
And it talks about, you know, you had several people stating that the tapes from the Burger King may have possibly been altered and, you know, the cameras and the cars and on the persons of, you know, of, of the police department may have been altered and erased or what have you. There are many allegations. And yet people are still trying to try the victims in a court of public opinion. And so I find it, you know, this is something that we need to talk about. This is something we need to deal with. Michael Brown, you know, was tried in the media. Um, Trayvon Martin tried in the media. Laquan McDonald tried in the media. And Black Lives Matter Chicago just sued the Chicago Police Department to release the records of Dante Servan. That was the police officer that killed Rebecca, I'm sorry, Rakia Boyd. And so there's a lot of things that are happening, and not just in Chicago and other cities. And this is why I'm encouraging you guys to go out there, do some research, you know, speak, you know, speak up. You know, so again, to those white bloggers who, you know, had their little feelings hurt because they didn't see any white dancers with Beyonce or or anything like that, all right, so you're upset because you didn't see any white dancers and, you know, Black Panther garb dancing up there, and that made you feel some kind of way. All right, think about this. This is something that we see and deal with all day, every day. You don't like the way that feels? It looks kind of funny to you? Put yourself in our shoes. And you'll have some of them saying, well, I understand that, but we got to start somewhere. Why does it always have to start with us? You know, and it goes back to, you know, you have these different movements out here when you had, you know, the gay rights movement, which is still active. When you had them, you know, fighting for, you know, funding for HIV and AIDS, you know, at the very beginning you had ACT UP when, you know, people were dying off like flies and, you know, no explanations, you know, were really coming forth. There was no education. And so, you know, you had the groups out there fighting for that, you know, and I've talked about this on the show. It was primarily for gay white men because at that time that was um, who were being stereotyped, you know, with that particular illness. And so they were fighting for funding and education. And then, you know, women had to fight for the funding as well as the education because women were dying from HIV and AIDS as well. You don't die from AIDS. You die from complications of it. So, you know, I want to make sure that's clear. That's why you've seen, you know, a significant rise in cancer deaths. You don't die from AIDS. You die from complications of it. So, you know, um, one of the issues when the Supreme Court made its ruling knocking down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, it, it impacted communities of color, you know, particularly black people. It also had an impact on elderly people as well as students. And this is something that you all need to know about in many, many more different groups, but 
those were the three that, you know, I wanted to bring up. And its impact, while, you know, while within a short period of time, the Supreme Court, you know, um, validated marriage equality. And so it was kind of bittersweet. And one of the sticking points from that time period, and I remember talking about this, you know, as a queer person of color or a queer woman of color, you know, it just so many different emotions, you know, went through me when that happened. Because even with, you know, the gay rights movement, they, we've talked about Proposition 8 in California and how the gay rights movement, the white gay rights movement, scapegoated the black community. And I've gone through all the numbers. We've talked about it on this show a number of times. I've posted article after article. And, you know, their gripe was, well, if the black community, you know, stood with us, then Proposition 8 never would have happened. And that's not true. But yet they're too afraid to go after the Mormon church. So they want to go after the easiest target, which is the black community. And so, you know, it's not only with the Proposition 8, but you see that happening all across the country, you know, with different movements and different groups. And, you know, even with the feminists, you know, the white feminists, scapegoating black feminists. And it's just amazing because it's been demonstrated time after time that, you know, sometimes when we join forces, once they achieve their goal, they throw us under the bus. And so, you know, you see some of the same things even within our own community. You know, you have black men now stating that, you know, this particular grassroots movement that is building up more momentum, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera, um, that this should be focused on black men and black men killed by state violence. And that's not true because black women and girls are being incarcerated and killed at the same rates, if not more, than black men and boys. But we have not been having that discussion. And trust me, we will be having that discussion on this show this year. And so it's just really interesting when you see all of this happening, and especially if you're someone like me who sits back and watch. You know, and, you know, I listen to a variety of different opinions because I know I have some friends that get upset when they find out that I do, you know, sometimes I'll watch Fox News just to see, you know, what they're talking about. And it's important to know that because how can you combat an argument that you're not prepared to, you know, to give a rebuttal to? So it's it's just interesting, you know, when you go out here and you start watching what's going on. But since, you know, the white feminists are upset about um, Beyonce, about Beyonce not having any white dancers, and this is one of the things that, you know, black women have complained about often is white feminists want, you know, they want us to read their books and to read their blogs and to engage them. 
but yet they don't want to read any of our books, any of our blogs, any of our information. And when they do, they only read it so that they could, you know, basically appropriate the information. You know, over on Tumblr and Twitter, you know, there have been numerous discussions about these white bloggers and white feminist bloggers in particular, you know, appropriating, you know, or outright stealing subject matter that, you know, and, and don't give the blog the black bloggers credit and the Latino bloggers and the Asian bloggers. They're being affected by that as well, as well as the indigenous. So Mike Check put out, you know, um an article talking about the twenty nine fascinating books for Black History Month you never got a sign. Read that, you know, and in addition to that, there are books by, you know, black feminists that you you should read as well. And, you know, the information is out there. Go look it up. You really want to have a conversation with us. Go look it up. Go look it up. Because it's out there. You know, um, over here at Lucy Witt, you know, they gave, you know, eight books, that should be read if you really want to educate yourself. Um, you know, eight books and articles white feminists should read for Black History Month. That's why I'm bringing this up, not only, you know, um, for Black History Month, but just period. You know, you may not be able to get to it this month, but you need to read some of these books. Um, you know, it has the, the Marginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex by Kimberly Crenshaw. And, you know, that's someone that I truly admire. Um, I'm not grateful for Viola Davis's win. It was Long Overdue by Ashley Ford. You know, Killing the Black Body by Dorothy, what's Dorothy? Let's see here. Sorry about that. Dorothy Roberts. And so, you know, you have a lot of different articles and books, you know, um, hashtag Flint Water Crisis is a Reproductive Justice Issue by Josie Pickens. And so what I'll do is I'll post those um, articles later, you know, because there are a lot of different things. You have um, Sister Citizen by Melissa Harris-Perry. You have Brittany Cooper, who's an absolutely wonderful blogger. Black Queer Feminist Erased from History. Meet the most important legal scholar you've likely never heard of. You know, and there's a lot of history out there. You know, I know when we talked about um, some of the black women that were part of the feminist community, a lot of people had no idea who Florence Kennedy was and, you know, just a number of other people. So, you know, get out there and do some reading, do some research. And, yeah, I know my little no-tep friends out there, you know, they hate feminism. And so it's just, it's the most interesting thing ever. But there was an article. Well, before I go into all of that, you know, I wanted to acknowledge a tragedy that happened and, you know, is having a major impact in the activist community, which it should, you know, Marshawn McCarroll, you know, he took his life, um, and it was tragic. You know, it happened on February the 8th, and, you know, I didn't post any articles about it because, you know, this this is hard. You know, what a lot of people don't seem to understand is when you're out here and you're an activist 
and, you know, you're out here and you're protesting different things. You may be doing a lot of writing, you know, a lot of counseling to different people and and just being there for people, you know, because, you know, there was an incident in which, you know, someone didn't have the money for their rent. And so, you know, I supplied a nice chunk of that because we just, we can't have that happening. And, you know, being an activist, you know, it's it's a thankless job. And, you know, you get depressed. You're like everyone else. You know, these activists out here, the ones, the organizers, you know, the things that we're out here doing, we're not superwoman or superman. We're not that. We have lives. We have problems. You know, we have good days. We have bad days. And sometimes it gets really frustrating when you're out here and you're trying to do some work and and put forth, you know, some wonderful ideas and programs, actually implementing them, not sitting around pontificating and theorizing about, you know, some of the solutions, you know, that are needed, but people that are actually out here doing the work. And so it's just, it's it's really interesting, but yeah, sometimes that shit wears on your nerves. And so, you know, this beautiful young man, you know, he took his life and my condolences goes out to his family his friends, the activists that had the opportunity to interact with him. You know, he was at the Black Lives Matter conference or the Movement for Black Lives conference last summer. So a lot more of us had the opportunity to meet him and others then because, like I said, it was like a love fest there. You know, it was, you know, I really don't have the words to describe it. But, you know, you had a white police officer that made some really ignorant comments, you know, you know, basically saying that he was happy that the young man was gone. And I've heard that from a number of white people, um, not just about, you know, this particular young man. I remember um, I was working at this one establishment when Tupac died. And one of the, ra- well, one of the owners, one was cool. The other one was a racist. And he hadn't realized that I had walked back into the area, and he was talking about how happy he was that Tupac had died. And, you know, it was just, it was just absolutely disgusting. And there was another time when I walked in on him, and he was talking about how something had been nigger rigged. And when he saw that I was standing there and that I heard him, he turned beet red and walked away and tried to give me some money, you know, which I refused, you know. And so the other owner apologized, you know, for the behavior. But this is something that, you know, we hear and we see. Don't think that we don't see you when you all write these hit pieces and you make these ignorant little comments. You know, and, you know, like I said, I see a lot of it, you know, on my timeline and Facebook. And so, you know, this year I'm going to do something different. You know, I think I'm getting ready to purge half of my Facebook um, 
friends list because I just don't want to see this shit anymore. And while I think it's important to see and to know what other people are thinking, at this point I consider it as abusive because they know they have people of color, you know, on their friends list, and they don't seem to care. I remember when one brought it definitely to my wall when I was talking about Black Lives Matter, and he just got outright angry. And what was interesting is we had over 800 mutual friends. And so I guess he just kind of, you know, lost it that day or whatever. But anyway, going back to Marshawn, you know, we definitely, you know, send our condolences out to his family and just do some research. And, you know, this right here, you know, this is tragic. This is a tragedy. And, you know, a couple of events that are coming up, they're going to have the Feed the Streets program, um, and that's going to take place February 20th from 1 to 3. And so, it's you know, they're trying to build Marshawn's dream. So this is going to take place in Columbus, Ohio. So, you know, go look that up. And for those that are looking to donate towards that, you can go over to the GoFundMe and put in Marshawn McCarroll, M-A-R-S-H-A-W-N, M-C-C-A-R-R-E-L. And so, um, yeah, I need to make a donation. So I'll be doing that, if not today, tomorrow. But, again, you know, you have to take care of your people. You know, it's a lot of people going through a lot of stuff out here. You know, it's not all shits and giggles. So, you know, I don't want to lecture or talk too much about it, but go out. You know, this was a very fine, upstanding young man, you know, and and he's not here. And, again, there's enough room for everybody to play a part in this community. So, you know, again, if you're working with different activists out there and you see, you know, a void that needs to be filled, fill it. You know, if there are needs that need to be met, donate. You know, don't stand in the way of people that are out here doing real work. And so, you know, I'm going to let that go for right now, but, you know, I'll be bringing it back up. And for those of you, I forgot to mention this at the beginning of the show, I will be doing the New Deal Part 2 next Sunday, and then I'm I'm adding a third part because of so much information that I ran across that I definitely want to get this out to you. And the two books, you know, really three books, um, Ira Katz-Nelson wrote two books. He wrote When Affirmative Action Was White, and you can get a lot of information out of that book. And then he also wrote a book called Fear Itself, and it's specifically is talking and dealing with the New Deal and how it was clearly put together for white people. And it talks about states' rights and and the compromise that had to be made in order for the New Deal to pass and how basically the black community was hoodwinked. You know, and it talks about the Dixiecrats, the Democrats, the ones that created the Ku Klux Klan, you know, the ones in the South, and how, you know, blacks were at that time voting Republican 
and how they crossed over and started voting democratically or for Democrats because of the New Deal. And so it talks about some of the psychology behind that as well, but it's actually a very good book. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but, you know, bits and pieces, you know, I'm doing some, you know, proofreading a little bit here, a little bit there, proof texting as some people call it. But go and read it. And the third book would be, you know, um, The Condemnation of Blacks by Khalil Muhammad. So read those books. You can get a lot of information, and I don't have my Kindle in front of me. But, um, you know, capitalism, the story that was never told, you know, I've been reading some of that, and that book is fascinating. So I'm definitely going to continue on, and we are going to do the show on capitalism that I've been promising for a while. So that's going to happen. And so like I said today, I just want to come back and say hello and let you guys know that, you know, we're still alive and pushing forward. And, um, you know, as they say, life happened. So there was an article, (laughs) and I'm definitely going to post this on my wall because, you know, this article right here, it says it all. It just says it all. And it says, I'm not political because I assume I will retain all of my privileges forever. And it's written by Sarah Bernstein or Bernstein, Sarah Bernstein. And so, again, the title of the article, I'm not political because I assume I will retain all of my privileges forever. Just that headline by itself, it explains so much and it tells you so much This is the reason why we tell you guys to read and to pay attention. And, you know, when I start talking about white fragility, you know, this is the thing. They're not as fragile. Many of these people are not as fragile as they try to make you believe. You know, it's it's just interesting because you have out here – you know, people, like I said, with that Beyonce thing, you have people that are going to protest, you know, the protesters. So they're protesting. It's it's just, it's crazy. But when you see articles like this, it makes you stop, look, and listen. And, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. And this can be applied to any community. And in particular, I'm looking at the gay rights movement community. I'm looking at the feminist community. And this is the thing, you know, they'll tell you that being an oppressed person or being an oppressed people, that is hard. And they don't like that. So that's why, you know, they were pushing for marriage equality. And there's more to it than just, you know, being oppressed. Marriage is a contract. You know, it's legal and it's binding. And so you got to go back and learn the history of marriage itself and why it was so important. But another, you know, um, component to that is single people actually need to have a movement. I've been saying this for well over 15, 20 years because if you're single without children, you're just screwed. They take all your money for taxes, and then there are no services or very few services out there to help you. But anyway, look, this article here is basically saying that, you know, this particular white woman, you know, yes, 
she'll <laughs> she just basically, you know, doesn't care anything about the politics, doesn't get involved because she pretty much knows that her, you know, privileges won't be affected. And there are a lot of them out here. You know, you have some people that will ask you to define and give examples of white privilege, white supremacy, and they already know the answer. And, you know, they come to you like they've never talked to another black person ever until you ask them. And they'll tell you, well, I've talked to a few people. And then you ask, well, what did they say? And they'll give you a little excerpt and say they don't remember the rest. See, that's the problem. You're not trying to remember the rest. And one of the things that I've been stressing on this show for the last two, three years is, you know, I'm only giving you all bits and pieces because I'm encouraging you to go out and research and read on your own. And you'll find other little nuts, other little I hear this article is, you know, is, is talking about something that we already knew. And, you know, what's interesting is you know, you'll have some of these people. Now, there are some out there that are just clueless. They really are. You know, and I've had, I've been contacted by people, oh, your show is great. Thank you. I didn't know about any of this. Okay. You didn't know about any of that. Fine. I'm glad that this show, this podcast was of service. But subsequent to your listening to that show, what have you read? What have you researched? Oh, I haven't had time. Okay. So, I mean, this is, you know, it gets frustrating. But they want you to take time out and explain all of these different things. We don't have that kind of time. And I've been saying that for a while. We really don't. Because all the time that we take out to re-explain the same thing over and over again is taking away from us being able to make progress. And in some cases, I believe that, you know, that is the plan. So, again, many of these people, they know that they will not lose certain privileges. It's just that they want all of the privileges. And so that's what they're fighting for and making promises. Oh, well, we're going to fight for black rights after that. And, you know, after that, actually pretty much never really comes. And then you have the movements, you know, the grassroots community and social movements that we're seeing today. And you have a lot of white people, in particular, white liberal progressives that are out here telling us, well, this is not the right time. Or why, you know, it should be nonviolent. And, you know, we don't understand why you all want to take up arms. So you don't understand why we want to protect ourselves? Really? Is that foreign? Ah, let's see here. We have a caller. Let's put them on the line. Hi, caller. Do you mind telling us your name? Caller? All right, Hi then. How are you? Hi. Good. How are you? Yeah, this is, I'm freezing in New York, but it's okay. All right. Uh, and Jimmy Spice Curry calling. Jimmy Spice Curry? That's correct, man. All right, Jimmy Spice, what's your question or comment? 
Um, the comment, uh, I think that our black African Morris community is globally at the bottom, Caribbean, in South America, America, Africa. Um, and I think it's hard for some groups to fathom just how low we can go and what's going on. I don't I don't think most um especially Anglo people I think they're clueless usually and I think on average they have an idea but I guess they're so busy with their mortgage or their car note or their own <laughs> stuff that they don't take the time to figure out, you know, hey, wait a minute. This is real stuff. Um Exactly. Yeah, I, I I just don't think they usually get it. And I think because of white privilege, it blocks um, certain mental faculty where common sense should kick in. I just don't think it kicks in. Um, and it's going to be a tough fight. I think the, the responsibility is in America on us. In Africa, not as much. And the reason I say that is because I think that the African situation is so dire and they're under such siege by foreign companies, multinationals, and the average person really not on our level economically, that they're going to need more help. For us, I think it's us. I mean, it's us. Me, you, a few of us come together, put $10 together, we do something, put a 1000 we do something, um, put a marketing plan, we do something. I think we we, we got to do it. No, no one else can do it in America for us. And then, quite frankly, I don't think they most care. Uh, so it's well, a, okay. We so let me come at that from a different angle. All right. So my opinion on that is in America, as far as um, basically deconstructing and destroying, you know, a lot of the systemic and institutionalized racism, um, capitalism, you know, it was created by white people. And I feel that the only way we're going to be able to deconstruct it or destroy it is through white people because they're the ones who gave racism or the different races. They're the ones who gave it value. It's a social construct, and it has value because they assigned value to it. We didn't do that. And even though we, we argue that there is no such thing as race, you know there is a racial hierarchy in this you know in this country even amongst whites there's a racial hierarchy you know with the top being white anglo-saxon protestants which basically are western europeans you know germans english you know the english and at the bottom of the white hierarchy basically are irish and italian people and especially if you came from the southern region of italy you know, but they're, they've been, um, you know, accepted into the ethnic white, you know, circles. So it's just, it's really interesting when we try to break this down. You know, if you all get a chance, go out and check out Nell Painter. You know, she has um, a lot of great books out there, and I've spoken about them before. But as far as racism and institutionalized racism and as well, you know, inequality and capitalism, we don't have the power or the money to deconstruct that. And and what I'm talking about, you know, just across the board, that's going to have to happen through white people. 
And in some cases, I agree with you, many of them are clueless, but they're clueless because this is something that they don't have to think about. This is something that they don't have to worry about. So, you know, they, they don't understand it, and they don't know what some of them. Now, some of them, they know damn well what we're going through. But some of the yeah. other ones, you know, yeah. they, they've never had to deal with it. They've never had to think about it because, again, the majority of white people do not have, you know, friends of color. You know, they don't understand our plight, and they have been trained to not listen to us. The only way they'll listen to something pertaining to us that, that, you know, we may have grievances with is if another white person says it, which is why you have Rachel Dolezal, you have Tim Wise, and a number of other whites that are capitalizing off of black pain. You know, and they get paid, and they get paid very well, whereas they're taking, you know, the, the ideas, the thoughts, the words that have been spoken by black men and women, and particularly black women, you know, for, you know, you know over a century. You know, it's, you know and, and they're getting paid for this. You know, it's been well over a century. You know, it's been 500 years of damn nightmares in this country, you know, and you know, it's just mm, some of them they've never had to think about it, and this is one of the reasons why I do this show. This is why sometimes I'll just throw this shit in people's faces. Here, deal with it, and you know, I'll get responses where I've never really thought about it that way. Of course not, <laughs> you know, and it's just it's amazing. And then you know, you see some of these people in these groups, you know, whether it's the you know, white feminists, or in particular the white gay community, you'll see some of them, you know, um, self-harming. And they'll self-harm in some cases and say was because I was oppressed. And I just sit back and I just look at them. And I'm like, if you're that upset because you feel that you're oppressed because of these one or two things, why is it that you can't even begin to empathize of what we're dealing with over here. And so, you know, it just it's, it's just absolutely amazing. And that's why, you know, it's not that I've given white people a pass, you know, but for the past five years, you know, I've been seeing some of these things even more up close and personal. And for the most part, just to be honest, most of them don't give a damn. They don't give a damn because they don't have to deal with it. And far too many of them will give us lip service. Yeah, we understand. We're right there with you. (laughs) And then when push comes to shove, we can't find anybody. You know, and so, I mean, I understand. Yeah, it has, when you say it has to start with us, what what I'm taking from that statement is that we're going to have to move forward. And if we're going to protest, the number one way to get somebody's attention is to hit them in a pocketbook. And we were able to do that with the boycotts in Alabama. You know, so interesting, you know, when I was saying earlier, everybody wants these celebrities to be Rosa Parks. You know, Claudette Cove and a lot of people, you know, are just catching up as to who she happens to be and how she was the she was the first person. She was the one who refused to give up her seat initially. But because of respectability politics, they couldn't allow her to be the icon. So, you know, we're still dealing with a lot of that respectability politics now. This is bullshit. And it's one of the reasons why we're not making as much progress 
as we should be making, but another part of it is sitting back and explaining all of this shit over and over. This is why I refer people to the archives. You know, go go listen to this show and help you to catch up with what, you know, we're trying to do and where we're trying to go. But it's a lot of work to be done out here, you know, and it's a thankless job. It really is. And, you know, I posted an article. It's a couple of articles. But I posted about how, you know, only a small percentage of the black church supported the civil rights black power movement. And so, you know, I was in this one session, and it was, of course, um, a religious um, type of panel and session. And so they were talking about how they were feeling pressured by people asking them why aren't they participating more in, you know, the social grassroots organizations and activism that's taking place now. And it was just so funny because at the beginning of these particular type of sessions, they allow everybody to stand up and introduce themselves. And so, you know, I sat there, and I was in the back in the corner. I usually always sit back there, you know, just to kind of observe. But um, everybody in the room was some type of Christian from some type of denomination. And then when they got to me, and I said that I was an atheist, well, you know, every head in the room turned. And so it was just the whole situation was rather surreal because when the instructor was up there presenting a lot of different scenarios and when that young woman posed that question, and I turned around and I answered the question for her and just did, you know, real brief contrast with then and now, and saying, basically saying was pretty much on par. And the instructor agreed with me. And, you know, he went into even more details, you know, about that. But um, it's, it's just interesting because if you hear the story, let other people tell the story, everybody's mama and grandmama was, you know, Mal- Malcolm and Martins and Coretta's BFF, right? And so we have to stop romanticizing the past, you know, because, you know, while you're taking time out romanticizing the past, the very harsh reality that we're currently living in, it's killing us. You know, and if you look at that situation of what's happening in Flint, and I want people to understand that it's not just Flint, Michigan. This is happening across the United States, and and people aren't talking about it. You know, here in Chicago, you know, the, uh, we have a water reclamation um, department, and they've tested the water. And, it's, you know, so many different traces of different things, traces of antipsychotics, traces of birth control, traces of, you know, hormonal, you know, uh, medicines. All of that, every time we drink the water, that is what we're, you know, ingesting, and, you know, there are some places, Steubenville, Ohio, as a matter of fact, their situation is even more dire than Flint. So, you know, and, and with the lead in the water and a number of other things. So it's just, you know, and again, if you go back, you'll see that the wealthy white suburbs are not being plagued with the same challenges 
And so, you know, again, we need to be out here protesting for a number of different things, but you have to educate yourself and become aware of some of these issues. You have to make yourself a subject matter expert, if you will. Um, It's just that's one of the beautiful things about the technology and the Internet and, and, and what we're able to do now. We're able to connect globally, like you said, Mr. Curry, Um, you know, connect globally because what's happening in America, trust and believe is happening in other countries. You know, um, a lot of people in America, you know, especially people of color, they don't realize that the same problems are happening over in England with, you know, people of color in England, people of color in Germany and, you know, Europe, you know, especially Europe with the Africans that are moving there, you know, um, it's amazing. France and Italy, they've had some outright blatant bullshit going on. Um, the rise, you know, the Nazi party is reemerging, you know, not only in Germany, but everywhere else, even in this country. And for those that were, you know, talking about what happened with the Bundy brothers and how they took you know, that government building under siege. There's a story. There's another story. African-Americans did the same thing. And let's just say that situation was rectified real fast. I'll post that a little bit later. But, you know, on a global scale, you know, I agree with you. You know, we're at the lowest rung on the ladder. We're the lowest rung on the ladder. And... We have to make some changes. And like I said, the number one way to get somebody's attention is to hit them in a pocketbook. And the only way we're going to make any real progress is, you know, through economics and power, which is why I encourage people to understand how the local governments work. You know, with the protesting, is definitely making some impacts, but it's, a, it's only a dent or two. You know, I'll give you an example. In South Carolina, you know, after that domestic terrorist assassin killed all of those, you know, black people at that church. Okay, you know, the governor took down the Confederate flag. That's not justice, people. And what's interesting is is that she's using that as one of her mantras to gain favorability within communities of color. Who gives a damn about a flag? And it's like, you know, I sit here and I think about these things. I mean, what say you, Mr. Crump? Well, no, 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 wait, 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 Curry. I think that um, the the issue is doing offense and defense simultaneously. I mean that, um, first of all, I think the flag coming down did do something positive in the sense that it at least – gave a visible um, confirmation that at least the system is claiming it's not going to put a disrespectful thing right in our face, you know, like sticking up a middle finger at us all the time. I I think for many of us it was somewhat um, refreshing, even though probably disingenuous. Um, Exactly. It was politically expedient. It was politically expedient for them to do that. Yeah, but it's politics. Even even uh, my white colleagues 
um, discuss how politicians are disingenuous, and it's almost like acting, you know. It's how much how much disingenuous nosity, whatever the word would be, can you get from them in order to gain a victory? Meaning, you know, get them to do something disingenuous ten times, and maybe uh, you know your group or your community is helped. But I do think that there are times when having Caucasian allies who, because I spoke to Tim Weiss a few times uh, a while back. I think sometimes it is good to have alliances to get into certain meetings, et cetera. And I, and I don't think it's necessarily anything wrong with um, the financial side. What I mean by that is the socially conscious community shouldn't be working for free. We do the most, right. well, one of the most important jobs on the planet. When we go to speak at a, an event, people should cut a check. Why? If a mathematician comes to teach about, you know, advanced math and, and calculus, then why shouldn't we, who are trying to save the community, exactly. as opposed to exactly. doing it out of our pocket and then taking our kids' college funds? Um, That's right. I, I, you know, I think the same thing with teachers. I think teachers should be making a million dollars a year, especially the good ones, because their job is so critical. And cops, if they weren't killing us. But for now, let's <laughs> hold off on their million dollars until they stop killing us. Um, but overall, yeah, but see, the thing is, all, is that... Yeah, sorry. One thing that I would tell people to do as far as, you know, the police officers, go back and read up the history on the on police and how they came about and why they were put into place. You know, because I believe history is everything so that people can understand um, the history of it and understand why, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's just, it's absolutely amazing. Go ahead. So, yeah, no, I'm just Okay, go ahead. No, I was just saying it's absolutely amazing because definitely we need to know about the history of police officers, their role in our country, Mm. and how that came about, you know, because with Mm. slave catchers and all of that, you know, to be honest with you, I don't believe, this is my opinion, we do not actually need as many police officers as they have on the streets. And the reason why I say that is many of the so-called social ills that create, you know, these negative situations, if there was more, you know, if we had more educational opportunities, more employment opportunities, more, um, you know, small business loans and things of that nature, and, you know, not even so much that, I, I would like for us to have a program like Kiva, that someone can borrow a certain amount of money, build a business up, and then pay the money back, you know, with a small interest rate on it. You know, but there are situations and environmental issues that create a lot of the problems that we see. And, again, you know, we've talked about the myth of black criminality. You know, it's important that people do the research on that because, you know, I get disturbed every time I hear someone say black-on-black crime, and now I correct them, and I tell them they need to look up proximity hypothesis and to get a better understanding of that, and that would explain a lot of the issues that, you know, we happen to be dealing with. So, I mean, we have a long way to go, and, you know, you're talking about the police, and you're in New York, 
you know, your police commissioner, Bill Bratton. Basically, he wants people to be charged with felonies who resist arrest. And, again, you know, defining what, you know, resistance is, you know, that's pretty much arbitrary because, you know, if you stand there and you don't put your hands behind your back fast enough, they can charge you with resisting arrest. And it's just, you know, if you fall on the ground, and they didn't mean for you to fall, but you fell on the ground, then, you know, they can charge you with, you know, resisting arrest. And it's ridiculous. And this is, you know, what they're doing. I'll give you some of the examples. Um, Jamil L. Cuffey, who was charged with resisting arrest after he found himself on the receiving end of a head stomp from a barbarous cop because he was allegedly rolling a joint. You know, and the cop screamed, stop resisting, as the guy laid there helpless, pinned under a pile of police officers. You know, a woman, Denise Stewart, was charged with resisting arrest after a gang of New York's, you know, finest threw her half-naked from her own apartment into the lobby of her building. They had the wrong apartment, it turned out. You know, and there are a number of other, you know, examples. And, you know, it's it's, it's complicated, but it's not complicated. The police have way too much power. Go ahead. Can I say that um, that's where my thinking offense and defense comes in because um, we have allowed the police commissioner to be in power and we have allowed laws and um, legislation to be passed that puts us in this predicament. And I always give my kids the analogy, once the poop is in the water, it spreads. Uh If we don't go to the source, Once these things happen, if we're not more politically active, if we're not picketing, if we're not boycotting, if we're not opening black-owned, you know, businesses and supporting them, if we're not going to the police meetings because they have them at the precincts, and I've gone and hardly any black folks that show up, if we're not packed, I'm talking standing room only, you know, well, you got to go in order of height. I think we... One group of us puts all emphasis on defense and the other group all on offense. And without the balance, we lose the game. We don't have anybody to shoot because everybody's on the other side defending. And in other games, we don't have anybody to defend because everybody's trying to shoot even though they most can't shoot. And that's why the balance is we have to take responsibility to say we're in America. We're not in physical chains anymore. Our minds may be, for most of us, come together, 10, 20, 30 of us, and say, let's buy that building, let's produce that song, let's support this politician, let's put out the best barbecue chicken in the world and make a million, let's open a franchise, (laughs) while simultaneously, let's vote for this person, or let's picket a police station, etc. And I think maybe, as I'm getting older, I'm sounding more and more like Bill Cosby, excluding his uh, supposed... uh, 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 that that, that switchboard will light up if you, (laughs) oh my goodness, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah, You know, let's move on from Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, 
But yeah, we have more. We have more. I have I have little faith in the system anymore, even though I do try to interact with it. So I put more faith in myself and whoever like me wants to get certain things done. I had a phone call last night with some people in an industry that have been overlooked, right? And I said, look, uh-huh. you all been overlooked, but are you overlooking yourselves? And they said, no. So I said, well, let's do A, and now we're going to do a venture where these brilliant folks from different parts of the world come together and, um, you know, get some of what they deserve. So, yeah, we I take responsibility. That's how I'm trying to live because I can't wait on nobody. It's up to me. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, we can't wait on people and it's, it's you know, we got to be able to move forward. But I understand, you know, that's what's been happening here in Chicago when they have, you know, the meetings, they pack that room out. They pack mm-hmm. it out. And, you know, there were a couple of incidents where people were carried out of the room because it got very raucous, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, again, making certain demands. And it's because of that consistent boycotting and protesting, this is how Chicago was able to get reparations for um, some of these people, particularly young black men and boys, who were beaten and forced to confess the crimes they didn't commit under John Burge. And so, you know, there are other things happening um, in the city here, but you know, a lot of this is happening actually across the United States. It just doesn't get the press that it's need you know, that it needs. But you're absolutely correct. We need to show up to these police meetings, we need to talk and we need to ask questions, we need to put pressure on them. You know, my thing is is that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of different types of boycotts that we can do. Um, you know, Stop going to, you know, stop giving your money away to, you know, a lot of these corporations, especially the ones that are invested in for-profit and non-profit prisons. And stop going to the businesses that in, that are invest, invested in that, like Whole Foods. That's one example, you know, I know some people at home are going to cringe when I say this, but Michael Jordan is invested and heavily in for-profit prisons, you know, and, and a number of other places. Hell, McDonald's, and their sales are already slumping. We can pretty much shut McDonald's down if we stopped eating there and stop working mm-hmm. there. And so, you know, it's just it's, it's another, a number of different things, and everybody can play a role in one respect or another. And so, Don't forget Shopton. Don't forget our own, meaning oh. we, we can target our, uh, the white establishment, but don't forget our many so-called black celebrities that claim they're black, but they're just buying another mansion and not giving back. We can target oh. them, too, because, you know, we, oh, we give them a pass. No, no, we don't. Not on this show. Okay. <laughs> you know, because yeah. people, look, let me tell you, I talk about Al Sharpton, and Jesse yeah. Jackson all the time and how I'm absolutely disgusted by yeah. a lot yeah. of the yeah. tactics that they use. And, you know, I was, I was online, I was on Twitter one day, and I was fired up. This is when um, we had the incident at Ferguson. And like mm. I said, I have relatives that live in that area. So when that first went down, 
you know, you know, I'm like, oh, shit, wait a minute. And I'm on the phone with my sister, and she's like, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, desperately looking for information. And that's why, you know, I had some people get mad at me because all I was posting was Ferguson stuff. It was about two, three weeks. I didn't want to talk about any damn thing else, just that. You know, and it was for a number of reasons, not only what happened to Mike Brown, but also what they were doing to silence the story and try to silence the people in the area when they shut down the Internet, when they shut down the cell phone towers, when they shut off the airspace and the helicopters couldn't even come in. And I'm like, you know, this is absolutely amazing. But I was so angry because, like I said, I was finding live video feeds and posting that because it was that was more for me than anyone else. But, you know, while I was informing and educating, you know, other folks with the information that I was putting out there, a lot of it had to do with, wait a minute, the babies and the babies' babies. Wait, what the hell was going on down there, right? Mm. And I was on, I was on my way down there, and but because of – some medical issues that I have, you know, the family was like, oh, hell no, you go down there and fall out, it's going to be an even bigger problem, you know. But um, I talked about Al and Jesse so badly on Twitter, and especially when they were booed after they tried to take up a collection. I talked about them so bad Martin Luther King III started following me on Twitter. Because I went in on Al, I went in on Jesse, I went in on the old civil rights vanguard. Yeah, the so-called black political elite or the black elite, I go in on them because, you know, you have many of them trying to co-opt this movement. And I was – because when I was going in, I was telling those babies, I'm like, don't let them take this from you. You know, kick them out, send them home because, you know, Al and Jesse were down there telling them – they were saying, you know, basically go home and pray about it. And we're mm. like, pray about it? You know, it, it was just, <laughs> you know. And mm. I was sitting there because, you know, you had Iyala Van Zant in Baltimore when that went down. You had Jamal Bryan in Baltimore when all of that went down. And, you know, those of us that know the deal, we were on, man, we let them have it. You know, and then I calmed down after a while, but, you know, like I still have that passion. I still have that fire within me. But then, you know, sometimes life happens and you have to kind of prioritize some other things. But the thing is, is that, you know, what a lot of people don't seem to understand is that you have the Congressional Black Caucus, the CBC. And there was some, you know, some controversy the other day because the CBC PAC or Political Action Committee endorsed Hillary, and then some members of the CBC was trying to differentiate the difference between the CBC and the CBC PAC because it confused a lot of people. But, you know, a lot of the crime bills and and issues that we're dealing with now with state violence and the sentencing disparity, you know, the CBC voted for that. And a lot of people are blaming Bush and Reagan and all. They need to take this back to Bill Clinton. He's the one that was signing those tough-on-crime bills, and so did Ronald Reagan and a number of other ones. So I'm not saying that it's Bill Clinton by himself, but what's interesting is when people have questioned Hillary about, you know, a speech that she gave when she called, you know, some kids super predators, black kids super predators, and saying that they need to be brought to heel. And so now they're trying to backtrack a little bit of that, and she's now trying to say 
that, you know, maybe the crime bill wasn't the most brilliant idea or piece of legislation that was passed. But the thing is, is that what is she going to do to fix it? And the answer to a lot of that is nothing. A lot of the wealth that was stolen from our community with this large mortgage bust or bubble that popped, it was because of Bill Clinton deregulating it. And so, you know, it's interesting because even with some of the decisions and legislation passed by Barack Obama, we're going to fill that 10, 15 years from now. It is going – some of this is going to have a very negative effect on our communities. And unfortunately, many of us have not, you know, become well-versed, you know, with what's happening. When Bill Clinton allowed NAFTA to pass and become the law of the land, that's when we started losing a lot of these manufacturing jobs, moving to South America, Mexico, Central America, and, and for basically for slave labor because they're paying those people pennies, and that's why the profit margins have increased and why the stock market was doing so well because they were able to pay excellent dividends to the shareholders. And so people need to understand, you know, the the business aspect of it too, which is why we talk about capitalism being so evil. You know, and, you know, earlier when you were talking about thinking globally, you know, they have us competing with people in China, which is a poor country, India, which is a poor country, and to a certain extent, even Africa. Africa is actually a wealthy country. It's just that the Africans don't have most of the wealth, you know. So, you know, it's just the way that all of this is happening, you know, we have to start looking at this from a number of different perspectives. But, no, you know, Michelle Alexander wrote an article saying, you know, basically talking about how Hillary doesn't deserve the black vote. And she goes into way more details than what I'm saying here because, you know, our time is limited, but I'll go ahead and post that on my wall. But, you know, it's unfortunately unfortunate because many of us, you know, it's about personality, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, we yeah. vote for people because we like this person better, or this person over here looks better. And I mean, it's just it's crazy. Another example of that was the other day when they were interviewing some some young white girls, and they were Republicans, and then they were saying that you know Marco Rubio was the guy, and one of the young ladies slipped up and she said, <laughs> "Oh, when someone when someone looks like that," and I'm like, "There you go," because there have been countless studies about how certain people have been able to win the presidency. It's just, it's amazing. You know, they put, they spend a lot of money, you know, getting into the psychology of these different situations. And I just wish that, you know, people would educate themselves a bit more. But anyway, I went all the way off from, you know, but I mean, it's relevant what I was talking about, but it's a lot of work to be done. It's a lot of work that needs to be done. Can I tell you that our the average American has been dumbed down tremendously? I think yes. not only the fluoride in the water, but the mental fluoride in the classroom and on Sundays that many of the people receive. I think that when we vote, if a person looks good, whatever you consider looks good, or if they got a little game, they can talk your flavor, it doesn't matter what they're saying, they get the vote. And that is exactly. a major problem. Bernie is not the most exciting communicator, but when I hear him talk, at least his arguments make 
sense, whether or not you agree with it, A plus B leads to C. It doesn't mean he's correct, but he's not making up something that's a logical fallacy, etc. Everyone else I hear talk, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, if they were if they were 500 pounds and had, you know, boogers in their nose, people would not listen to them. But they're slick and they got a little accent. And one is like, hey, I love you. And another one, yo, I love you. And so everybody picks whatever accent and nose size and tone they like. It's preposterous. We just vote for love. Oh, that's true. That's true, and, you know, it's, it's just really interesting. Raina isn't here today, but, you know, if she was, she would probably push back on that fluoride comment, but I don't feel like that today. So, you know, because, you know, there are a lot of different schools of thought about the fluoride in the water and the regulation of that, but that's neither here nor there. But, you know, what you're talking about in regards to, um, you know, again, it being a popularity contest, that is correct. You know, um, you know, I used to love that band, Living Color, and one of my favorite songs was Cult of Personality, right? And you can apply that in any particular, you know, movement or, or group or what have you. That is what it is. And it's interesting because what I'm starting to observe in in certain communities is, you know, you'll have people, let's say like me, been doing this podcast for five years, have made some very, very valid, solid arguments and have expounded on them. And initially some people were looking at me as though I was a three-headed monster. But what I find even more interesting now is that now they're parroting what I've been saying. And, you know, so, you know, I'm happy to see that, you know, that I've been able to change the narrative within certain circles. But, you know, with some of them, I still don't believe they understand it. They're just, you know, parroting off information that they think that people want to hear. So, in basic, you know, basically what I'm saying is that they don't understand what they're saying. They just know it sounds good and, you know, you have people out there that agree. And this is where the education comes in. This is where, you know, you have to self-educate. But, you know, it's a lot of things that are happening that, you know, we need to kind of brace ourselves for because we're getting ready to hit another bubble. And what's interesting is is that when you see when we have, you know, even back in 2000, 2001, at that time I was living in Atlanta and we had the tech bus. And so, you know, most people don't realize that many of these, you know, technology companies, they are not put together to be profitable. The majority, 99.9% of them are in the red, and they're not put together to be profitable. So anyway, you know, without going into all the politics of that, what happened was you would see these hedge fund managers and all of these people jumping out of buildings. They were committing suicide like nobody's business. And, you know, we saw a lot of that with this mortgage bubble. And, you know, what we're coming up against now, you know, is absolutely amazing. And so this is why when I was speaking earlier about NAFTA, um, the jobs and the loss of those jobs and the loss of that security, that 
it was because of that. That is what created a lot of these tea partiers and some of these libertarians. And what we're dealing with now, they want a new social contract. And what's happening with TPP, guys, I'm telling you, 10, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, we are going to regret this. And, you know, when you sit here and you try to, you know, educate people on a lot of these, and you have to look at it from a number of different perspectives, but we have to take an even broader look at it because, again, we're talking about a global economy. And just one example that I want people to think about is they want people in the United States who have grown accustomed to having certain privileges and, and um, um, you know, um, entitlements. And basically, they want you to compete with people in India and China. I don't see too many people in this country that want to make, you know, 25 cents an hour. And so it's it's, it's amazing because when you try to explain, you know, whether it's micro or macroeconomics, you know, most people, they don't get it. And that's because we've made the language so fucking complicated. And there is a way mm-hmm. to streamline it, but at the end of the day, we're caught up and living in a system that we have absolutely no control over. And, you know, we're being pulled backwards and forwards, but I just want people to go out, read about the TPP, understand what's happening there, understand how is it, it, it you know, impacts your life. But, man, like I said, it's just so much happening that is unreal. And, you know, I haven't been posting, but I hope people have been going out and reading and, you know, seeing what's happening out here. But what you said about Bernie Sanders and his stance on a lot of these issues regarding, you know, let's just say, Um, racial parity or racial justice, you know, when the Black Lives Matter activists first hopped that stage, white people were outraged. And that's going to hurt the movement. And, and, you know, I heard it from a number of different people, and I kept having to drill it in their head that in actuality they're helping him. And Bernie Sanders went from being at 3% and 13%. Now he's at that midway mark and gaining still. Because what happened was it forced him to write a platform policy regarding, you know, wealth inequality and, and, and his stance on it and what he would like to achieve. So, you know, again, with that Hillary thing, Hillary is scary as hell. But there are some things about Bernie that's scary as well. And, you know, what what gets me is I need people to pay attention to a lot of the rhetoric that is coming from both Hillary and Bernie's teens. Because, you know, but Bernie has been saying and talking about, you know, um, radical revolutionary positions on different things. He's been talking about that for years. So this is not something that he just jumped on the bandwagon with. That would be Hillary. Now they're over there talking about revolutionary and radicalism, whereas <laughs> you know at first it was it was a cuss word. And so, you know, again, you know, you have a lot of these white liberal progressives out here, you know, and they get angry with me. But quite a few of them are racist. 
sexes, all of those things that we don't like. You know, the xenophobia in this country is just, you know, outrageous. But, again, when I heard one of the comments and shut one whole conversation down, because I wasn't part of the conversation. It was like two or three people talking to each other on a thread, and it happened to go through my news feed. And so they were upset because Black Lives Matter and some of these other movements, you know, was creating violent situations and, you know, how they wanted to be nonviolent because with the civil rights movement, it was nonviolent. Now, these are their words. And so I responded with an NPR um, podcast talking about how guns kept us safe during the civil rights movement. And that's true. They were armed. And in addition to that, you know, black people definitely were for, you know, the Second Amendment. And I posted that article about what happened in California with the Black Panthers. And one of the reasons why, you know, Ronald Reagan was so angry and made some of the changes that he made. You know, in essence, if you go back and you read up on Ronald Reagan and some of the laws that were passed, to a certain degree, he put black people back in slavery. And nobody wants to talk about that. You know, you know, we may not be walking around in burlap sacks or anything like that, but if you go and you look up the legislation that was passed, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, what's interesting is they want us to stand alone out here with our hands up in the air, completely naked, and not able to defend ourselves and be totally at the mercy of, you know, the powers that be. And that's not going to happen. Can I tell you, I think I have an idea why. I'm sorry for interjecting. I think the average white person is used to telling off the police and getting their way, not getting hit upside the head, going in a store, and if there isn't enough water in the cup, complaining, and somebody gets fired or in dust. We we used to, when we see the police, if we don't look at them right, we get hit upside the head. We go into business, they treat us like trash, and when we complain, they treat us like more trash. So in their world, right. for most of them, they're like, well, what's wrong with you all? You don't need a gun. You don't need to protect yourself. You just stand up and speak out, and people will listen. They're delusional, most of them. They are <laughs> clueless. <laughs> if they come in my hood with me for <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I understand perfectly, and I agree with that to a certain extent, but let's look at it from another perspective, okay? And, you know, I do this sometimes on the show, and it irritates, you know, some of the people of color that listen to the show, but, you know, there's another demographic that we're kind of ignoring. Poor whites. Poor whites are being killed, you know, in their neighborhoods or, you know, their particular types of ghettos, you know, the trailer parks or what have you. But um, they're being killed, you know, on the street. They're being shot. You know, they're dealing with, you know, addiction issues, whether it's drugs or alcohol. It's just a number of things. But, see, they don't get the press, you know, because, you know, in, in South Carolina, it was a young white man that was killed by the police. And, you know, and again, state violence was not justified. They just shot and killed him. And so they they arranged for a vigil for that young man. And it was about a dozen black people that showed up and about two, three, four white people. And, you know, I gave a talk most recently, and I told them, you got to show up. 
not just for the people of color. You need to start showing up for the poor whites that are being killed. It's important. It's important. See, and that's where a lot of the strife and the resentment comes in because they feel that, you know, that the media is reporting these stories about the black and Latino communities. They've just totally written off the indigenous community. And what's happening over on these reservations is it's worse than what we're dealing with, than what the blacks and Latinos. What's happening to the Native Americans, you know, I... You know, sometimes when I read those stories, I'm about ready to cry because no one is listening to them or acknowledging what's happening. But anyway, so, you know, basically the stories of the poor whites that are, you know, being killed not only in the trailer parks but the ones living out in rural areas out in the country, you know, those stories need to be brought to the forefront. And, you know, let's just tie it back to, a you know, um, in this historical context. When Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, that was during the time when he was starting the People's Campaign, you know, that People's Movement. And so remember, they built they built a, t- a tent city on the White House lawn, and, you know, it was happening all across the country, especially when um, the housing bubble, you know, happened most recently, 2007-2008. There were tent cities going up all around this country. But going back to the People's Campaign, at that time, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s appeal was starting to have an impact on poor white communities, and he was trying to bring us all together. And this is why I am saying that, you know, we need to pick the people's movement, the people's campaign back up, and, you know, and and we're doing some of that now. But that is why it is so important because it's starting to link some of us together the way it should because, you know, we need to talk about all of these issues, you know, and so that's why when I have people, you know, trying to say all lives matter and white lives matter too, and my response is, okay, yeah, that's true, but you don't care about what happens over here. You don't care about what happens over there. The only lives that really matter to you are the lives of you and, and people that you can relate to, you and your friends. That's it. And, and the most argument don't moves care the goalpost. The exactly. argument moves the goalpost. If I hold up a sign, Black Lives Matter, it does not mean other people don't matter. What it's saying exactly. is that respect our lives more. So people allow logical fallacies to impact their thinking, and I think often they don't even realize it. And I also think that the, uh, much of the media position put, pits the poor whites against blacks and Latinos. So by default, by not covering stories of poor white people and Native Indians, what the Native Indians then will think is, oh, those black people getting more privileges than me. Not that we created the media, but we by default become the enemy of both the poor white and the Native Indian. Not all of them, but on general. And none of us have anything to do with it. It's just the caste system, how they all play us. And then it leads to many blacks assuming that it's only blacks going through the pain. So therefore, it creates the entire caste system mindset, black against Latino, black against Native Indian, black against white, poor white against black, poor white. I mean, it's preposterous. And we don't come together to say it's all a game. Right, and see, and that's the thing. You know, what you just said right there was spot on because basically, you know, again, going back to the, 
you know, um, the myth of black criminality and the myth of black inferiority. What happens is in this country in particular, it happens globally, but I'm an American and, you know, I'm seeing what's happening over here and I do read about other places and I post it. But what happens is they use black, the black culture as the example, and they say you don't want to be like those people there. And that's one of the issues that you're seeing with um, some of the Latinos now, um, you know, because <laughs> they, in some cases, they're being considered honorary ethnic whites now. And I remember somebody telling a story about a black kid and a, and a Mexican kid arguing, and the Mexican kid said to the black one, you don't talk to me like that. I'm white. And how all, the, you know, how the people around just stopped and looked, and they were like, you're not what I remember this one Puerto Rican woman told me, you know, because I forgot her name, you know, and I'm really bad about that sometimes. I'll remember your face, but, you know, some the name just slips me sometimes. And she was like, yeah, I guess all us white people look the same to you. And I started <laughs> laughing, and she, she was like, what are you laughing at? I'm like, the fact that you think you're white. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, man, so, yeah, you know, and I wasn't trying to be rude, but just the fact that, you know, anyway, so it's it's just, I don't know, dude, I'm just looking at this, and this is why we're encouraging people to read, you know, the book by Khalil Muhammad, The Condemnation of Blackness, really is a superb book. It is very, very well written, and that's why I can't wait to do the shows on capitalism, you know, on especially on the book, you know, capitalism, you know, the, the half that hasn't been told, you know, and it's talking about slave labor then and, you know, pretty much now because when I talk about them forcing us to try to compete against, you know, people in India and China and other places – is, you know, a lot of people don't seem to recognize that, you know, there still is slavery in certain parts of the world. And so um, it's just absolutely amazing. But, you know, you get out here, you do this work, you know, it's just interesting because, you know, you'll have people like, oh, you're just doing a podcast. And I'm like, do you have any idea how much material I read? And the difference between me and some other people is that I actually learn the material, you know. But um, something you said earlier when you were talking about the dumbing down of America, that has been happening for a long time. I remember when I was about 12, 11, 12, 13, somewhere in that age range, and I believe Time Magazine, it was either Time or Life, more than likely it was Time, or maybe it was U.S. News and World Report back in the day when it was good. Um, they were ta- It was an article, and it was the cover story, The Dumbing Down of America. And it was talking about our educational system. It was talking about, you know, the different distractions and things that are put out there to, you know, to keep people focused on the wrong things. And it's, you know, it's, it's true. And it's even worse now. And what was interesting is, you know, I had a young man that he calls into the show every once in a while, Red Ninja, and, you know, he was talking about some of the subjects we discuss on this show. And he said he didn't learn about a lot of this until he went to college and had to pay for the privilege of the class. 
And, you know, I've had a lot of whites come to me and say, well, I didn't know anything about this. And at first they were a little skeptical. And then they started researching and they were like, well, she's right. Damn, Skippy, I'm right. I'm not going to get on here and talk a bunch of shit. You know, I can walk down the street and talk shit to people, you know, <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, but a lot of us don't know about a lot of this history. And that's across the board, black, white, yellow, red, whatever, you know. And it's important that this type of information come to the forefront. But, yeah, it is a thankless-ass job. And there are some days, you know, when, you know, I get up and I'm like, oh, I want to do this show, you know, and it's not because it's just some days I'm like, you know, I know it's reaching a lot of people. I know it's helping a lot of people. But some days, you know, you just kind of, you don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to think too hard. We all have days like that, you know, so. You know, I took some much-needed time off to get some personal things in order, um, you know, and um, life is all right. It's all right. No no major complaints right now. And, you know, much, much more promising things to come. You know, have some different projects in the works and more information about those will be forthcoming. But, yeah, we're going in a different direction this year. So we're going to be talking about more of these issues and, you know, securing some more interviews. You know, I guess I'll start, you know, doing interviews and things again. Well, not interviews, people interviewing me, me interviewing people. And I'm at the point that I'm pretty much turning down all interviews um, unless it's specifically about one of the projects that I'm working on. But um, And also I want to make sure I'm still turning down talks. So don't even waste your time. So, um, and it's interesting what you said earlier about how these activists should be paid when they give talks. You know, you have people out there that are so desperate to be on the forefront or to get that celebrity status that they are willing to do all of these things for free, which makes it harder for those who are demanding fees and, and you know, being treated like, you know, the other people that are on the program. And with me, when I speak, I won't take the money. But what I do is I make them give it to a charity of my choice. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's that's what I do. Because, unfortunately, in this country... You know, again, with the, some of the white supremacy, when, when they invite you out to speak to their group or, you know, their community or whomever organization, basically, if if they give you $5, some of them feel that you are now beholden to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in many cases, I've talked about how the money is dirty and how some of that money has the blood on it, and I don't want it. So I turn around and, and take those funds and have them donated to a worthy cause so that, you know, and I think more of that is needed. But with a lot of these different places that want people to come out and speak, you know, there are a lot of ulterior motives behind it. And people need to start looking at the bigger picture. It's not because you're popular. It's not because this person wants you in whatever capacity no, and unfortunately, you have a lot of people in in these communities. They're playing checkers 
while these other people are playing chess. And they're strategizing, you know, they're tactical. They're, you know, they're setting you on the right path in the right direction so that it benefits them and doesn't necessarily benefit you as much as you thought it was going to benefit you. It may benefit you a little bit, but you're not nearly getting or receiving as much as they are. And we need people to really start paying attention to what's happening around them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. But, you know, to see that I've made, you know, an impact on different communities, um, seeing that, you know, the narratives have changed. When I first, you know, started doing this podcast, I said that I wanted to change the narrative. And now that's happening, even to people who didn't want to talk or say anything about um, this narrative. They thought it was a bunch of bullshit and negativity. Now they're talking about it. Now ain't that something? So, you know, I'm just sitting back, you know, and, you know, a big part of me is proud of the accomplishment. But it's it's only a dent. We have a long way to go. So, man, do you have any closing remarks you want to make? Because I'm getting ready to close us out. We got seven minutes. Oh, okay. (laughs) Briefly, thanks thanks for the discussion. It's great to talk to someone and have an audience that is at least um, desirous of hearing perspectives so that we can hear the other side. Um, Regarding a point you made earlier, I think that most people expect socially conscious people to eat air, and pay rent out of wishes and prayers is because uh, from a religious perspective, supposedly Jesus could walk on water and this and that. Nobody was cutting him a check. Muhammad wasn't a broke guy. I think it's Hinduism or Buddhism, the dude was actually a a prince, right? So people Uh look at this and think, oh, hey, all these noble, noble folk, they don't get money. Well, they didn't need it. They could walk on water. I can't walk on water, but I have to pay my rent. I'm not a prince, even though I think I'm a prince, right? So the religious (laughs) concept has just bucked it up for all of us. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And you're right. You're the prince, and I'm the duchess. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, I mean, you're absolutely correct. You know, know, people still got to pay their rent, pay their mortgage, People still got to buy food, you know, and um, we're, you know, it's, it's just as amazing. People still need to wash their clothes and buy some new stuff yeah. every once in a while, you know. People still need sometimes to help out relatives, you know, a number of different ways. But, you know, it's it's, it's real interesting. But, yeah, no, I've seen people, you know, out here doing this work, this hard work, and, you know, lost their homes, their jobs. Yeah. That's why, you know, with some of these people, you know, they'll never be able to go back to work in any type of corporate or academic setting because of the type of activism that they've been yeah, doing and working true, on. True, and true. so, yeah, so now they're blackballed, not because they did anything, but because now they're deemed as troublemakers, you know, mm-hmm. bring somebody in and they know how the unions work and why it's important to have unions. You know, companies don't want that. You know, at this point in time mm-hmm. in this country, they are basically, you know, killing the unions. And as one, you know, gentleman in Ohio got angry with me, 
you know, he says they're splintering the labor. And that mm. has been happening for a long time, and which is why I'm telling people that it's important that we learn about these people that are running for this office. Personally, I am um, I'm looking at the Green Party. You know, um, there's a couple of candidates over there that have my attention, and I just wish that they were allowed on the stage, you know, during these debates because they have a lot of solid positions over there. But as far as the Democrats and the Republicans, I can't stand either, any of them. You know, and I'm a former black Republican. I used to be a black Republican. I mean, I loved me some J.C. Watts, man. You couldn't tell me nothing. But, um, you know, and there was a number of them, you know, and I learned a lot of information from, you know, a lot of these people. Um, at one point, you know, I was a member of BAMPAC. Um, and so it was just, it's, it's interesting. But when I left the mindset of being a Republican, you know, a couple of the older people, they told me, they say, live a little, you'll understand why. And I lived a little, I've lived a lot. I understand why firsthand 10 times over. So, you know, I consider myself an independent because, you know, at the end of the day, both of these parties are in collusion. And, you know, the American public doesn't seem to understand that. Now, what's happening with the Obama administration, yeah, they've obstructed him, you know, to no end. And hypothetically, if Cruz wins all the time he's in office, that's what's going to happen because he's one of those people, it's his way or no way. So people need to pay attention to what's happening around them and choose wisely. But um, it's just, it's unreal. So anyway, like I said, you know, we are here. This is Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. I forgot to say that at the beginning of the show. But, guys, I just want to let you guys know how much I missed you, and I needed that time off. And, you know, I'm a little bit rejuvenated. Got some other things in order that I had to kind of get under control. But we're moving forward. So next week, the New Deal Part 2. Sunday after that, New Deal Part 3, go and check out Ira Katz Nelson's books, When Affirmative Action Was White, as well as Fear Itself. And I also want you to check out The Condemnation of Blackness by Khalil Muhammad. So it's a lot coming up. You know, I want to start posting more back on social media. But for the most days, I just don't feel like it, you know, but I'll probably start up again. But, you know, Subscribe to the newsletter. You have the Black Free Thinkers Praxis, which comes out daily, and you have the Moving Social Justice Daily, and you know that comes out daily as well. So subscribe to the papers, read the papers. It pulls a lot of good information in. Every once in a while, we'll get a you know rotten apple in there. You know, again, is being pulled from hashtags and different people. So. You know, don't blame me. I didn't put that conservative hit piece on the front page. wasn't done deliberately, but just let me know, and I'll correct it. So, again, this is Kimberly with Black Free Thinkers. I missed you guys. Thank you, Mr. Curry, for, um, you know, joining us today and calling in next week, guys. We're going back full speed ahead. So, again, you know, it's really good to know that people are out there listening and learning 
um, you know, this this podcast, you know, it, it actually made me smile. It made me happy. So I'm happy about that. And it's more to come. It's more to come. You know, we got to move faster. We got to make some more distance um, on this. And so with that, I guess I'm on my way up out of here. It's too cold to go anywhere, so I guess I'll cook mm. something. Anyway, yeah, you know how it is. It's just as yeah, cold up call. there as it is here. It mm-hmm. is. Give me a call when you get the chance. All right, I'm doing a print screen. I'll okay. give you a call, okay? Okay. All right, okay. you guys. Take care. Bye-bye.